and welcome to QPod, QIC's Investor Insights podcast series. I'm Alison Hill, State Chief Investment Officer at QIC, and each week we invite our listeners to take 10 and to get an update on economics, markets, and other topics of interest for institutional investors. Today, I'm joined by Investment Director, Strategy and Implementation in QIC's State Investments team, Andrew Whitaker. Hello, Andrew. Hi, Alison. Thank you for having me. I'm an avid listener of the podcast, and you and Matthew do such a good job of outlining the pertinent issues. So in Matt's absence, they're big shoes to fill, but hopefully I can offer some insights. Well, we're really pleased to have you. And hopefully, I think there'll be some interesting things to chat about today. And one thing I did want to turn our minds to, if you don't mind, is we often talk about macro, but Andrew, you're a multi-asset class investor like myself. So just be curious to think about your views of markets more broadly. Yeah, sure. So I guess at a high level, the big question for financial markets and equity markets more broadly, I suppose, has just been the the rapid rise in developed market interest rates over the last 18 months or so, and why that hasn't translated into softer risky asset or equity market pricing. So if you had to teleport me down from Mars and said that the RBA cash rate was 4.1% uh, and the US Federal Reserve had hiked rates 10 consecutive times since March of 2022, I would suggest that potentially higher yields and higher discount rates um, would have put some downward pressure on equity markets and risky assets more broadly. And I guess the, the big question is, why hasn't that been the case? And you know, there's a couple of reasons that get bandied around. The first of which is the transmission mechanism of monetary policy. So perhaps it's going to take some time for these hikes to feed through into the real economy. Perhaps the impact of higher yields has yet to be fully felt by the consumer. The second point is around consumer balance sheets remaining in such rude health post-pandemic. So lockdowns, um, governments cutting people checks, etc., has meant that, you know, post-pandemic period is, you know, somewhat unprecedented for the consumer and perhaps it's resilience in consumer balance sheets contributed to this ongoing market strength as well. And the third and final point is just around inflation. So many of these forecasters are now forecasting immaculate disinflation, so inflation to fall back down within central bank target bands in short order. But it must be said that a lot of these um, market forecasters have had a pretty horrible track record of forecasting inflation over the last couple of years. So, a lot of uncertainty. I think a cautious approach is, is warranted, but also an open-minded approach for both financial markets and portfolio construction. Oh, some really interesting thoughts there, Wits. Look, I've got to say, I'm the same. As you say, if you cast your mind back, to have equities at the strength or see the strength that they've delivered, it, it's quite remarkable from my perspective. But, you know, there's some factors that are contributing towards that, as you've outlined. But given that, looking forward, I mean, we, we the markets are sort of at this really interesting juncture where we're sort of coming towards the end of the of the rate hiking cycles and, you know, valuations are, you know, fairly fair to full, one might say, within equities. But what's your view of markets looking forward? Yeah, I, like to, I like to keep it pretty simple. I'm a pretty simple folk at heart. And I think there's a couple of core tenants. One is like a hockey analogy. So they always say you should skate to where the puck is going. But in financial markets, I think you've got to skate towards where the liquidity is. And the other day, I was looking at central bank balance sheets from from the major developed market central banks, and that's China, Japan, uh, Europe, and the US. And really, when you look at the expansion of central bank balance sheets, they've, they've expanded by around five and a half times since January 2007. And if you overlay that, maybe a simplistic measure with the say chart of the S&P 500 or the US equity market, that's gone up by around three times over that corresponding period. So whether it's correlation or causation or whatever you want to call it, it's 
probably fair to say that central bank balance sheets and liquidity has been the, the rising tide that's lifted all boats over this last period. Another thing I like to think about is, you know, I think it was Bill Clinton's strategist who said this. He said, if I was reincarnated, I'd like to come back as the Pope or I used to think I'd come back as the Pope or the president or a, <laughs> a baseball hitter with a with a great strike, Greg. But no, I want to come back as the bond market. And why the bond market? Well, I'm, I'm a fixed income guy at heart, so perhaps I'm a little bit biased, but really discount rates and yields drive everything. And I think with US 10-year real yields banging on the door of 2%, uh, with nominal yields in, in many kind of developed markets approaching or close to their cycle high, it remains to be seen whether or not we see some repricing in um, other asset classes on a forward-looking basis. Now, we've had that repricing in, say, fixed income markets or high-grade credit markets, for example, but we've yet to see it translate into other asset classes like equities, which remain expensive on many of the valuation measures we look at, high-yielding credit, for example, and even real estate, whether that's residential real estate or industrial real estate, etc. So the jury remains out on that. My third observation, and perhaps it's not that prescient, is that I think the asset allocation that we as multi-class asset investors have utilised in the last period, the period post the GFC till now, or roughly 2022, perhaps not going to be the optimal asset class allocation on a forward-looking basis. And so we'll have to really kind of rejig our thinking around that. Andrew, some really interesting points and some challenging ones for the listeners potentially around thinking about those balanced portfolios that we, you know, most us and others have been using. So what are you thinking about multi-asset class portfolios on a forward-looking basis? Well, Alison, I could give you my thoughts, but I think today I'd like to, if it's okay with you, we might try and flip the script because people always want to hear what the chief investment officer has to say, the chief decision maker. So I think <laughs> I'd like to hear about your thoughts on portfolios on a forward-looking basis and, and markets more broadly. So what do you think this, the forward-looking environment means for portfolios and what's keeping you up at night, Alison? Well, thanks, Wits. Look, there's a few things keeping me up at night, unfortunately, but as it pertains to the portfolios, look, I am concerned about inflation. I do think uh, forward-looking, it is going to be difficult for the central banks to really get that inflation back to the target levels. Uh, so I do think forward-looking inflation could be a bit stickier and could be a bit more volatile. You know, thanks, Alison. I guess, you know, those multi-asset portfolios, what does that mean for them, this, this higher inflation environment? Well, there's a couple of things we've been looking at and doing some research on. The press or the media often talks about the 60-40 portfolio, which is, you know, 60% growth assets, which is usually equities or equity-like type, type risks, and 40% defensive assets, so bonds and other defensive type assets. So that's called the balanced portfolio or the 60-40 portfolio is generally the, the nomenclature used. But one of the key tenants in building that portfolio when they sort of arose, that sort of trend of the 60-40, was that for a long regime, equities and bonds had a negative correlation. So what we saw was, you know, when there was equity market weakness, that commonly occurred when there was some sort of economic weakness. And because of the economic weakness, policymakers were adjusting interest rates, they were cutting interest rates to support the economy. So that means when we saw equity markets falling, we generally saw bond markets rallying and, and delivering a positive return. So we had that countervailing forces of, well, equities might, it might have been down, bonds are up. So that was a really neat construction from a total portfolio perspective. But which, as you know, that equity bond correlation over a longer term horizon varies and it does change from positive to negative. And one of the influences of whether it's a, a positive or a negative correlation is indeed the level of inflation. We've got heightened inflation now and we have seen um, in recent times that that equity bond correlation has become positive again. And if you think indeed that, you know, we certainly could be entering an environment whereby that positive correlation is maintained and that does have some implications for portfolio construction you know, characteristics and how do we think 
think about making sure we have real ballast and real defensiveness and, and, and diversification. So we've done a lot of research into that and thinking about it. And it's not all doom and gloom. We do we still do think that bonds are going to be important in a portfolio. We think, if nothing else, they're certainly starting at a much higher yield than they were previously. We've got 10-year bonds at around about 4% and cash rates at around about 5%. That in itself is providing a yield and certainly a real yield for most markets with inflation expected to at least come down to provide that positive yield. It does provide some um, lever for diversification, but we just need to be aware that perhaps the strength of that, I guess, ballast might be a bit different looking forward. Oh, great. Thanks for that insight, Alison. That's, that's fascinating. And I guess the other thing people talk about, particularly given our jurisdiction in Australia, is the Australian dollar. And Matthew alluded to it, I think, on a prior podcast around China and the impact of, on that. But what, if it is, what does it mean from a total portfolio construction perspective that the Australian dollar? And are we going to see that ballast it provides to the portfolio on a forward-looking basis? Yeah, it's another really interesting one there, Wits, because again, it's a really key area of research we've been thinking about. The Aussie dollar has always been, a, you know, what you call sort of, I guess, a risk-on currency. It has been positively associated with economic growth. And generally, um, that's because we're a big commodities country. And when the, you know, when the economy is booming, there's generally heightened demand for commodities, there's infrastructure building, etc. And that commodities demand has seen the demand for the Aussie dollar being strong. And so the Aussie dollar is resilient. But when there's risk, we generally see the Aussie dollar having some weakness. So when you're an Aussie dollar-based investor like we are, um, having some exposure to foreign currency has always been quite you know, advantageous. So while you might see equity market weakness associated with potentially some Aussie dollar weakness, that foreign currency has been a, you know, a really beneficial ballast. The challenge for us now is that, again, that breaks down a little bit in higher inflationary environments. There's a bit of a different relationship. And also the other thing that's somewhat newer in terms of its strength, at least in my perception, is that increasing relationship of the Aussie dollar and the uh, economic prospects and outlook for China. As we've seen, China's uh, data releases recently, you've seen the Aussie dollar move up and down, you know, quite consistently with the strength and the perception of, of those outcomes. So there's just a different relationship emerging. And I think, and that doesn't again mean, I don't think it means that the hedge is uh, not valid and it's not going to be helpful, but it's just something that we need to think about. Is it as does it have as high a level of efficacy and can we have as high a level of confidence in this forward-looking regime? So that's what we're really thinking about. But, you know, it's just another one of these challenges that comes together when we're thinking about building a multi-asset class portfolio. But now you quiz me on those two things, Wits. I'm going to turn the tables back. Time for you to uh, sing for your supper here. The other one that we're looking at is like, well, if we've got FX and, and you know, the equity bond correlation sort of both still working, we think, but potentially being a bit more challenged. I'm certainly keen to make sure that we're adding other tools and other forms of exposure into the portfolio to increase the resiliency, increase the robustness. So I know you've been working on tail hedging. Um, how are you seeing that as a strategy? Do you think that one's going to be a helpful solution? Better thing for myself here. Um, so I think, <laughs> you know, tail protection strategies on We've definitely been looking at tail protection strategies and they typically involve option structures. Now, what are options? People, you know, people hear about the term option. It's really the, the right, but not the obligation to buy or sell an underlying security. And really, this was a space that was really dominated by sophisticated institutional investors prior to COVID. But then we saw COVID and we saw mum and dad, particularly in the US, the retail investor with um, sport betting markets closed. They got off their couch and they started trading options. So we had the GameStop, the AMC incident. And really what it spurred was um, exchanges expanding their offering in this space, different maturity, different profiles, different different instruments. And so we really saw an adoption by, by retail investors in the option market. And this was coupled by also institutional investors like ourselves who post-COVID thought, oh, gee, we better buy some insurance in our portfolio. And so what that has meant has meant the option market has quadrupled, which is massive, increase in the option market since 2020. And I think on a forward-looking basis, it probably has you know a couple of impacts. And one, 
is from our perspective, the interactions of this market with the underlying assets and the dealer community and how that kind of all relates together potentially means that if we have volatility in markets, it may be exacerbated on a forward-looking basis. And we've seen that over the last few years. If we get downdraft in equities, often it's quite a volatile event, but it can bounce back and be quite volatile over that short period of time. I think those kind of volatility events are likely to persist on or increase in frequency on a forward-looking basis because of this dynamic. And I guess the second thing is just, you know, child protection is really a form of insurance for your portfolio. And at the moment, like in spite of, you know, the uncertainty and headwinds that we've spoken about, insurance is still reasonably cheap for the portfolio or still, you know, reasonably attractive. So it's definitely a space that we're looking looking at from a total portfolio construction perspective. And also, as you, as you mentioned, given the Aussie dollar and other stock bond correlations may not necessarily be as effective on a forward-looking basis. Maybe some of these option structures might help to provide the portfolio with a bit more resilience. Well, thanks, Chris. Very interesting. I look forward to seeing the conclusions of your research there. Appreciate you joining me today. And thanks also to our listeners for taking 10. 